Good morning. <laughs> See you. Uh, if you would, join me in Revelation chapter 2. I believe you already uh, have the handouts. Turn your uh, mic on. No idea. Not that. Yeah. All right. Revelation chapter 2. We're actually going to be uh, looking at the next letter in this series of seven letters from the Lord Jesus to churches in the book of Revelation. Of course, that's all in part of our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, as you remember, based on verse 19 of chapter 1 in that uh, key verse, it gives kind of an overview of what John was to write about. This is in that second part, the things which are, or the present things, uh, things which are going on now. You could work it several different ways, but uh, things about the present. Now, that was true when Jesus spoke those words to John some 2,000 years ago, and that's true today. We still are in that same section as far as uh, history and time. We are still in this church age, um, and uh, the future things that are written about in the book of Revelation have yet to happen. And that's important because... Um, be way off if you uh, don't understand the book of Revelation in that order. Um, but uh, we're in, in this present stage in the book of Revelation. All right. So chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, I'm going to ask you all to, to read that. We'll go around in our normal rotation so that Pastor, you can start that. And just wherever it stops, we're going to have some other verses throughout the lesson to pick up on, so don't get a chance. Don't worry, you'll get a chance. All right, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. <coughs> I know that works, and we're not dwelling. Verse 16. Now hold us fast my name, not denied my faith. Even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, slain among you for Satan's dwelling. But I have Hath a year, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in his stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save, saving he that receiveth it. All right, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, look at this portion of your word, we ask that you would help us uh, aid, be able to communicate this properly, accurately with your word, and as concisely as possible, and yet. Father, help us to understand, of course, the uh, the contents of this letter, and then, of course, what you have for us in it, and uh, Lord, help us to understand as well that these matters uh, that are written about in these letters to the churches, of course, uh, although that is, in, in some ways of our viewing it, ancient history, 
uh, Lord, it's very relevant for the present. It's present day news. So I pray that you would uh, help us in, in these matters this morning. Most of all, I pray that you would uh, draw us closer to the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we've began. This is the third of these seven letters that we're, we're uh, looking at here again in just this one portion of the book of Revelation. And we've seen uh, the Lord Jesus' address to the church at Ephesus. We saw his address to the Smyrna, of course, they're both quite different. Um, the church in Ephesus, of course, I mean, so much going good, good things to say about that church, but yet one thing, just one thing the Lord pointed out, but of course, in his estimation, it was a big thing, and uh, that being that they had left their first love, and again, I, I think it has to do with their their hearts being, maybe it just clear just by distraction, and it wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily a purposeful thing on their part, uh, but yet they were, they had neglected, all right, that first love, and um, that's something obviously that's very important, and, and we can do all kinds of things, but without love for the Lord, everything falls short, and so that, that's it's just extremely important, can't overstate it enough. The second letter, the uh, letter to the church at Smyrna, uh, not really a long list of good things to say about the church, really, uh, but simply put, they were a church that lived in distressing circumstances, and yet they were being faithful to the Lord Jesus, and that, that's what's important. You know, and it's interesting, think about it this way as well. The Lord's got, in these letters, <clears throat> excuse me, he is analyzing each of these churches in their own situation. He's not comparing the church at Ephesus with the church at Smyrna, and then with the church at Pergamos, and so on. And that's not how the Lord looks at his churches. He doesn't compare his churches, because every church is unique and has unique circumstances, unique uh, makeup, unique gifts, it's, you know, unique. Although we all, all the Lord's churches have the same responsibilities, there are some uniquenesses of those individual responsibilities and uniquely different places, right? So, I mean, the point being, and that we fall into that trap, number one, as humans, and maybe especially in our type of society, culture in which we live, that we tend to look at certain uh, situations, certain churches or whatever, and we think, oh, that's, that's a successful church, that's a good church, you know? That's not how the Lord looks at it. The Lord holds everybody really to a standard that he has set. And he's the only one in reality that knows how that individual uh, church in its individual situation stacks up or matches his standard that he has. And so, you know, it's not a matter of the Lord's comparing these churches one with another. They were all important all equally important to the Lord Jesus. That's something that's easy to lose sight of. But we come to this third letter here, the letter to uh, from the Lord Jesus to the church at Pergamos. And as you can see from the title uh, in, in, uh, in the handout there, I've, I've called this church the Compromising Church. And of course, we'll get into that and uh, explain that. Uh, the Lord has some good things to say about the church. 
then he points out something obviously that's wrong with the church. And, uh, you know, Revelation reveals, of course, about the future. And, and it seems to me that that's the great focus that everybody has when they think about the book of Revelation, which, of course, you know, that, there, there's, that's obviously right, okay, because it does reveal, reveal uh, the future to us in ways that, you know, the rest of the Bible does not. But at the same time, we can lose sight that, uh, you know, number one, the revelation is the revelation, according to verse one, it's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It, it's about him. And then secondly, there's an emphasis in the book of Revelation that the Lord intends for his churches in their present day to, uh, of course, to, to, to know and to, uh, to, to grasp and understand so that we can serve him the way that he wants. And we can't uh, lose sight of that as well. But these seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, from, again, about 2,000 years ago now, are extremely appropriate for churches today. In, in the year 2024 now, I almost said 23, but uh, 2024, isn't that, have you caught yourself even just saying that yet? I mean, it just seems like, to me, I'm just trying to get used to saying 2023, now it's 24, I mean, just time's flying, but... When you were, you know, say 50 years ago, can you ever imagine living in the year 2022? I mean, that just seemed like some far off fantasy thing, you know. But here we are. Uh, but I mean, this is this is appropriate for today. So let's. Uh, and, and you'll notice that the content of the handout is a lot longer than the last. Um, Last one we looked at there, the, the Church of Smyrna, which remember that letter is the sh is the shortest of all the seven letters here. This one's about average, here. Um, but as we look at this, we'll again follow that sevenfold approach, the outline. It's common with these letters, right? So first of all, let's look at the church address. Verse twelve, you see, and unto and to the angel of the church in in Pergamos, right. These things saith uh, he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So the, the church address, the city of the church, of course, obviously, the city of Pergamos. And I don't know if anybody had found a map, whether in the back of your Bible or looking elsewhere. Um, and I had a slide. I, mean, I could not get it to come up properly and insert it into the PowerPoint, so I can't show it to you. But... Um, it was probably the best picture that I've seen that had you know, the cities and the, the, the locations of them. But Pergamos would be the northernmost uh, destination, if you want to say, of these seven letters here. Um, and it's located some 60, 70 miles north of Smyrna, about 15, 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea there. And in its day, it was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. Obviously, Ephesus, we, we saw that a couple weeks back, was an extremely important city. Uh, Pergamos, though, was an important city as well. And this city still exists today. It's called, it has a different name, uh, but it, and it has a population. Now, I'm quoting from Easton's Bible Dictionary here, which actually, the date when that Bible Dictionary was written was in the late 1800s, so 
I, I have no idea if the 200,000 or whatever is, is accurate, some 20,000, excuse me, how accurate that is for today. But uh, it had its first, it had the first temple dedicated to Caesar. Now, this is important in that city. Uh, and in that context, all right, the emperor, Caesar, began to be recognized as a deity, as a god. And he, you know, he demanded that kind of following. And uh, this uh, is the first city, then, that had a, a temple dedicated to Caesar. And it was a rabid promoter of that imperial cult. And it is possible that that's what's meant in uh, down in verse 13, talking about where Satan dwelleth. Obviously, Satan himself would have a, a strong connection with something like this, all right? Something that's uh, a, a false worship from a false god. Um, but uh, this, this idolatrous city also had a number of pagan deities, having temples uh, to a number of them, and we listed some of them here, Athena, Asclepius, Demeter, Dionysus, and Zeus. There was a large temple dedicated to Asclepius, and he was considered the god of healing. Anybody ever think about, even in medicine today, the a common symbol for medicine is, is a, a staff with the serpent wrapped around it. That was the symbol of this Greek god way back then. And uh, still used today, associated with medicine. Now, I think probably most people that you know, hospitals that are, see that, they're not necessarily trying to worship that, that uh, false god. But um, anyway, it's point is that symbol has been long associated with, with medicine, healing, and so on, right? So um, there's a large temple dedicated to that false god there. Satan, of course, is likewise symbolized as the serpent throughout Scripture, right? Beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and all the way into the book of Revelation, right? Pergamus was famous for its university with a library of over 2,200,000 volumes, and it was uh, uh, known for its manufacturing of a parchment. Uh, and the parchment, actually, the paper then was referred to as pergamena. Uh, the atmosphere of the city was very averse to any effective Christian testimony in life. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians didn't live there and be faithful to the Lord, but the circumstances in which they lived were very difficult concerning that. The idea. So, the context of this church, and like Smyrna, Pergamos is not mentioned elsewhere that I know of in Scripture outside of the book of Revelation. Um, a couple of the other churches are, but this one's not, right? And so then consider the Christ described, second area of this letter, right? See the church addressed, and one thing to take note of as you read through this particular letter we pointed out before, you notice how the letters are addressed in with a singular second person pronoun, the, right? And, and, and the Lord words that as that he's writing to the angel of the church in fill in the blank, right here, Pergamus. And you'll see that the, the T pronouns are prominent in these letters. But in this letter, I don't know if you noticed as you were reading through it, you'll see there's a a switching back and forth between he and you, 
soil form, right? Um, we'll perhaps mention some of that as we go, but notice, notice how Christ identifies himself here. In, in the other letters, we've seen each one of these, and it's true for the rest, that Christ, as he writes this church, he mentions something about himself, some, some identification about himself as he's writing, and obviously it has a pertinence to what is being written about of this church, the condition of this church, if you want to say. Remember in the letter to Smyrna last time, he said that he's the one that conquered death, right? He's the one that was dead and is alive forevermore. He has the keys of hell and death and so on. And, and, and that church, he told them what? That they were going to be facing persecution even unto death. All right, so that obviously there's a connection between how he describes himself and what he's writing about this church. Now here, notice how he describes himself. Very simply, just one really simple de uh, designation here. He says, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And that goes back to John's vision, back in, uh, or the, the, the vision that Jesus how John saw Jesus there in chapter 1, in verse 16, it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. All right? And we'll see even later in the book of Revelation this same description given of the Lord Jesus. In fact, in chapter 19, whenever we get there, which is describing the literal second coming of Jesus back to the earth, one of the things it mentions about him there is that out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. And we'll see that in that context, what happens with that sword, he uses that sword to smite his enemies, to do battle with. He just simply speaks, of course, is the idea, and it happens. And in that, he conquers the beast, the Antichrist, his false prophet. They are cast alive into the lake of fire there in that context. So this is Christ's word. Obviously, you realize that the, 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 the Bible, the word of God, is likened to a sword, right? In fact, it's called the sword of the spirit in Ephesians and so on. But um, this is the weapon that Christ uses. And it's interesting, okay, that, that seems like that that is used against his enemies, right? But here he uses this in context with this church, which should be an attention here. Right? He says, I'm the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. That's how he identifies himself here. And of course, uh, and, and I think this is appropriate for a number of reasons here. Let me just read the description I have here, right? The Lord Jesus is self-described here as one possessing the sharp sword with two edges, and there's other references again in the book of Revelation to that. This is an obvious reference to the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, having a double-edged effect of salvation. Think about that. The Word of God has the effect, a saving effect, right, in people's lives, but it also has an effect of judgment as well, of, of conquering. And of judgment. And uh, obviously I think both are, are in, important and pertinent here. But this sword is sharp. In fact, the verse that you're familiar with, Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is quick. 
think it's alive, it's living and powerful, and the particular word powerful there is the idea of operative. In other words, it is able to accomplish things. It, it's not just, you know, mighty, it is, but it's, it, it is working as well. It's, it's, it brings results. That's, that's kind of the idea. Um, and and um, in that verse, it even says that it is able to discern between soul and spirit. Think about that for a second. Soul and spirit are immaterial, right? They're not physical aspects. But the point being is the word of God is so sharp and effective that it can discern between the things that obviously are impossible for humans to even comprehend, let alone figure out and discern. And obviously the Word of God, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring conviction to sinners, to bring conviction to saints that are in need of conviction, right? I mean, uh, the Word of God works in that capacity. It's able to divide between soul and spirit. The Lord works through His Word. His Word is reliable. It's operative. It's sufficient. Think about that. You know, oftentimes people rely on, on experience, like some experience that they have. And I can, I can think of numerous times in, in talking with people and something of this sort comes up, you know, and, and you, you're talking with a person that they, they outwardly give the indication that they, they really uh, love the Lord and want to, you know, want to, want to, to serve him and so on like that, and then you start talking to them, and you, you come up and you hear some kind of, particularly if you ask them about, you know, how they got saved and so on, and, and one, one particular uh, circumstance comes to mind, and this person, you know, started, started talking about, and this is, this is in the context of being asked the question, you know, how do you know you're saved, or, you know, uh, if you ask Saying, yeah, you know, how do you know you're saved? How did you come to Christ? And they start telling this story, and it's the, this vision of, you know, going up this staircase and opening this door, and then there was this bright light, and 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 Jesus was standing there talking to them, and 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 then started describing Jesus as like a, a female character and stuff. And I mean, bottom line, okay, no matter what the the individual things are, all right, that doesn't line up with what the Word of God teaches. So what is to be trusted in that circumstance? And to be honest with you, okay, and, and I'm in that, in, that, in, the, in that specific circumstance that I'm talking about, I believe that person who was saying that was very sincere. They were convinced of that. Now what, if, if they really saw something or whatever, I can't say for sure, but the bottom line is, it really doesn't matter because that's not how a person gets saved, according to the Bible. And as Romans says, let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is what is the final authority. Now, in saying that, think about that for a second. Some would argue with that and say, well, God is the final authority. He, well, yes, he is. Uh, in Psalm 138, verse 2, uh, 
there's a statement in there, it's not the whole verse, but toward the end of the verse, the Psalm 138.2 says, Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. I think really the implication of that is God holds his word, says there above his name, but God holds his word to such a degree that that is the authority that men have to look have to look. Because if we just say, well, God's the authority, different people have different views on who and what God is. So there has to be a tangible, if you want to say, authority. And God has given his word, and that is the highest authority that, uh, that we can look to. But <clears throat> he, he works through his word. His word's reliable. It's operative, and it's sufficient. And that's how I got off on that, on that little uh, circumstance, that story there. It's sufficient. In other words, we don't need other things. Uh, to to convince us of what's right or wrong. If it's what the Bible teaches, it's right. If it's what the Bible teaches not, then it's wrong. I mean, that makes sense. Maybe I didn't word that statement exactly right. But uh, the Word of God is the standard. It's the authority, and it's sufficient. You don't need other things. You don't need to be convinced. Now, there was a time when the Lord gifted men, such as the apostles, to do things to authenticate what they were saying, that it was real. We don't need that today. In fact, let me just, I'm already on a little rabbit trail here, I guess, but in the day in which we live, in Christianity at large, there is a growing, it's been this way for a while, but there's a growing emphasis on uh, you know, miraculous things and so on, and, and sign gifts and various things. Do you realize that in the, in the context of the Bible's timeline, that the, 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 the exercise of miracles, number one, are a very small thing in the context of the whole Bible. There's only been several periods of time in which God actually used miracles, okay, to be signs for man. I mean, think about that. Throughout the entire Old Testament, it's not that way. Do you realize that? I mean, there's only certain periods of time. In the day of Moses, God used signs, some miraculous signs. <clears throat> and even in Joshua's day, Moses and Joshua. But then really, you don't see anything in the way of miraculous things like that until Elijah and Elisha coming on the scene. And there was a specific purpose in their ministries for that. God was trying to call the nation of Israel back to revival. But there were many other prophets that did not have gifts of, of miracles, like Elijah and Elisha did. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then, really, you don't see any of that again until the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Which, by the way, that was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Not just... Jesus was prophesied of, but the fact that he would do miraculous things. He would heal people. He would, you know, I mean, that was spoken of in the Old Testament, that that's what the Messiah would do. So you see the Lord Jesus, and then in the, the apostles, immediately, you know, following the Lord Jesus' ministry, the apostles were given, uh, at least several of them, maybe not even all of them, but several of them, uh, that we read about in the New Testament were given the ability to do miraculous things 
for the purpose of authenticating what the Lord was doing. And every one of those situations, by the way, you can see, again, in the scope of Bible timeline and history, those were at points of change when God was doing something different, so to speak, bringing in something different. Perhaps arguably, except in the case of Elijah and Elisha, but again, I think there were specific reasons for those. But what I'm getting at with that, okay, in the, in the scope of the Bible's timeline and history again, do you realize when the next time that those miraculous things will be, will be seen? During the time of the Antichrist. The Bible tells us clearly he's going to have the ability and the power to do miracles. That's scary to think about. But, but what I'm saying is there's so much emphasis in professed Christianity today for this idea of these signs and all this stuff. And they, they are useless today. Their purpose has ceased. God's not giving those signs. Now, anyway, as a general rule there. And, and the next time that you see that in the scope of the Bible is in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist. And we'll get there uh, in, a, in a few weeks with some of those things. But that's important to understand. God's emphasis for us today is his word, not things and miracles and and so on. It's his word. And so that should be our focus. Now, the, the last statement, and I, I, I've gotten a little bit bogged down here, but the point being is, on the part of God's people then, his word is to be trusted. He expects us to trust his word. God expects, I mean, think about that. God expects people to trust him for salvation. And, and God's up front about that. You know, I, I've, I've heard people ask that question numerous times. So you just expect me to trust, believe that there's, you know. Well, it's not necessarily that I do, but God does. That's what God says. That it's impossible to please him apart from faith. Apart from believing that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, a person has to believe that God is, that he exists, that he is who he says he is, and that he'll do, he's a rewarder, he will do what he says he will do. But a person must trust that. If they can't trust that, they cannot have a relationship with God. They have to trust that. The thing is, God's up front with telling us that. He's not trying to hide that. He says, there is an element of faith that I demand. Think about that. Could God have done things different? He could have. He could have done things in such a way that there's not a human being alive that could ever question him. But that's not what he did. That's not what he chose to do for his reasons, right? And he has that prerogative because he's God. <laughs> he, can, uh, he can do what he wants to do. And he can do anything except for what goes against his character. He can't compromise himself. But he demands to be trusted. Anyway, that is relevant to what we're talking about with this letter because that means that God not only demands that people trust him like in salvation, have a relationship with him, but God demands that his churches trust his word. And that means... 
relying on his word. Not just like promises to us personally, but relying on his word in the sense of using it for his purposes. To preach and teach his word. To, but it also means that we should follow his word. To the T. And that's what I believe we see is the issue in this letter with this church. They had compromised some things regarding God's word. And again, I don't think you can say that they were purposefully doing this uh, and, and that they were, you know, like uh, trying to sell out the Lord, so to speak. But it's one of those things that we are susceptible to if we're not careful. Compromising on some truth. All right? So... Well, the part of God's people, his word is to be trusted, put to use, and obeyed completely. So the commendation, what, what good does what good things does the Lord have to say about this church? Well, look at verse 13. He says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Again, he knows, he not only knows what's going on, but he knows your circumstances. Have you ever heard? I mean, and I've probably been guilty of it. I mean, you know, but nobody knows what I'm dealing with. Nobody knows what I'm facing. Well, the Lord does if no other human being does. And notice as he addresses this church, he, he relates that to it. I know your works, and I know where you live. I know what's going on. I mean, nothing esca escapes his, his eye, right? But, <clears throat> excuse me, but he says, uh, I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan seed is. Now think about this. This is the only church that I know of that anything like this is said about them. In other words, he says, I know you live in a very evil place. And, and we could probably talk a while about you know, trying to figure out argue what is Satan's seat here again. You know. But the point being is they live in an evil, evil environment. You hear people in America today talking about how evil our country is and all, and it is, yes. It's far cry from, you know, at least the general rule of far cry from what it used to be. I mean, America's never been a Christian nation in the sense that everybody's been Christian, all right? I mean, but there has been, because of, you know, things in America's past, there, there has been a general and the Christian influence in the past, there has been a general respect for the things of God and a general fear of God, even among unsaved people in this country. But that is obviously not the case anymore, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure it could be worse, okay? Uh, but at the same time, obviously, it's not what it once was, but far cry from, you know, I, I don't think it, you could say that this is. Nearly as evil a place, perhaps, as what Britain is. Now, maybe that's a matter of opinion. But as the Lord addresses this church, he says, I know where you live. And that's where Satan's seat is. But then notice what he says about them. He says, and thou holdest fast my name. You're holding fast my name and hast not denied my faith. So they were holding fast to the Lord's name, not denying their faith in him, his faith, their faith in him. All right? 
And then he says, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. In other words, this man Antipas, Antipas apparently was part of this, was obviously in Pergamus, and part of the apparently part of this church, this congregation. Now, there's not a whole lot known about Antipas, but there are some historical things about him. In fact, I got it somewhere in here if I can find it. Uh, it's actually on page two of your handout there uh, under letter C, their danger, all right? But Antipas is said to have been executed by being slowly roasted in a bronze kettle. That doesn't sound very pleasant. But point being is the Lord, the Lord knew all about that, and he's writing to these people of which Antipas had been, I mean, people knew him, I'm sure, that's why he brings up the name, and he's commending them for not casting aside their faith in this time of persecution and so on, that they had stayed faithful to him. They were holding on to his name, they hadn't denied him and his faith, all right? And so he's commending them for this. Then in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against thee. Now notice the difference here. In, in Ephesus, he says, I have somewhat against you. In other words, really, that, and there's only one thing that he points out. I have just, there's just, all this good, just one thing. Now it was a, a big thing, but one thing. Here he says, I've got a few things against you. I mean, by comparison, that sounds like this is probably worse, right? I've got a list of a few things here, you know, uh, a list for you here. And then he mentions those things, and we're going to have to, I don't know that we can really even get much into this uh, because of time, we're going to have to stop, but let me just introduce it here. He says, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat set things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. All right, now that's the list, I guess you would say there. He says a few things, and he names these several things. Um, but again, I, I think that really the condemnation that he's talking about here as he delivers this in, in verses 14 and 15, in spite of good things, even holding fast to Christ's name in the face of persecution, they had some problems. And the big issue, I think, that you can boil all these down to is that they had compromised, and, and I'll use a different word here, they had tolerated certain things. It's interesting that that is, a, that is a big idea in our culture today. Toleration. Now, there's probably some certain things that your minds go to when, we, when I say that in that respect. And by the way, it doesn't matter what it issue is. In God's viewpoint, God, let me say it this way, in the viewpoint of God's word, toleration 
of wrong is never right. Toleration of wrong is never right. That might be portrayed in our culture today as a virtuous thing. They're very tolerant. Now, there are circumstances that we have to be tolerant of because we can't change circumstances. But whether we you know, tolerate things that we can control, if I can say it that way, that's a whole different matter. And the Lord is basically telling this church that what he has against them is that they are tolerating certain things that they should not be tolerating. Now, think about this for a second in light of the church at Corinth. Right, the church of Corinth had arguably many issues. All right, and I think there was one big issue that everything went back to. Um, I'm not going to get into that right now, but in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, there's a particular issue of immorality that's addressed there. Right, somewhat familiar with that context. All right, and there, Paul the apostle is writing to the church there at Corinth, and he's condemning them for their tolerating that evil in their midst. That was, that's really, I mean, he didn't use that word per se, but that's really what he's saying, right? That they should not be tolerating that. They should deal with it, confront it, and deal with it. The same, it may not be exactly the same issue, but the same principle is true here in this church of Pergamos. That's what the Lord Jesus is pointing out. That they were allowing, tolerating some things in their midst that they should not tolerate. And thus, I use the word compromise. That's really what it is. They were compromising God's truth. And we're going to have to stop there because of time, but we'll get, we'll get into the specifics of this here, Lord willing, next time. This is an important matter. In fact, I think my personal opinion, this is one of the two biggest issues, problems in churches today in America. I'll get more into that in just another time. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your truth, your word. And I pray that you help us individually, us as a church, Pastor Breaker and his role, Lord. Please help us to be faithful to you in every respect, to be faithful to your word, and not tolerate that which is wrong, what you say is wrong. Please give us the wisdom and grace we need in our individual lives and collective lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Yeah.